There was once a bunch of tiny frogs. They arranged a running competition. The goal was to reach the top of a very high tower, and a big crowd was gathering around to see the race and cheer on the contestants. The race began. Honestly, nobody in the crowd believed the tiny frogs would reach the top of the tower. You could hear them calling out, Way too difficult! Oh, they will never make it to the top. Not a chance that they'll succeed. That tower's too high. The tiny frogs began collapsing, one by one, except for those who would get a fresh burst of energy, and they were climbing higher and higher. The crowd continued to carry on. It's too difficult. They're not going to make it. More tiny frogs started to get tired and give up. But one continued higher and higher and higher. This one never gave up. At the end, everybody else had given up climbing the tower, except for that one tiny frog who, after a big effort, was the only one who reached the top. Then all of the other tiny frogs naturally wanted to know how this one frog managed to do it. A contestant finally asked the tiny frog, how did he do it? How did he find the strength to reach the top? And it turned out he didn't even hear the question because the winner was deaf. This is Natural and Wild with Christine Grayson. I'm a storyteller and a nemophilist. Nothing separates us from nature. I've seen my own face in all of hers. Welcome to my show. In the early 2000s, we began this weird new shift in our way of thinking about social norms and business and pleasure throughout the whole world. I remember it was 2001. Our new president, George Bush Jr., was going to his inauguration. I was actually in Washington, D.C. at that time. I was a protester at that one. Anyway, I remember this sinking feeling when he got elected. I felt that something deep, deep inside me say the world is about to shift in a dark way. I felt it. It made me feel sick inside. I was genuinely detecting that voice telling me something was really, really wrong. And it wasn't just the inauguration, the election. No, this was more foreboding. And that inauguration was just a timing mark of a turn in the world forever. Felt it in my bones. And after that event, things did start to slowly deteriorate the ways I was used to. I could see these things changing just as clear as, as you can watch the leaves change on the trees in the fall. And I got very sad about it. It took a long time, but it did come true, that vision, that feeling, that inner voice telling me the whole world was going to shift its idea of what was moral and not moral. And as this moral shift progressed, I noticed more social distance. I noticed how over the course of the next 10 years and through a new generation, the keywords and the phrases that had been tossed around during that old Bush election campaign had worked. It had worked on a new generation. The words, a return to family values, had seeped in. 
but in a way that made a lot of younger people feel disillusioned and even disgusted with a lot of normal, everyday communication between the genders. All communication, innocent or not, moved in the direction of feeling uncomfortable. We went a little bit far. We, we went footloose with it all, and there was no Kevin Bacon around to save us. Now, I admit the 80s were a bit, you know, wild, And we were a little bit over the edge with our rebellions and things. But at least there was a sense of heart and soul to it all. I've noticed when large groups of people try too hard to suddenly become moral saints, there seems to be a drop in the real heart of things like creativity and art and fun. Fun or play becomes criminalized on all its levels. The fear to have fun, that's what I call it. I believe that we were slowly becoming a society of social distance before this pandemic even started. Larger group thinking, taken really far, grows into something else after a while. We're not good at doing anything without going overboard. This thing called balance isn't easy for large groups. It's a little bit easier on an individual basis. You can decide to be more balanced with the way you do things on a small scale. But when we become part of a larger collective group mind that focuses in one direction, it erases that individuality. And erasing individuality erases heart and soul. It trickles down into every category of life, the way we work, entrepreneurship, personal branding, presentation, marketing. Society is a mob, and it's got a lot of moving parts, this mob. Conjures all kinds of questions and interesting thoughts. This all began to make me feel like a lot of the music we listened to became clones and something stale. A lot of visual art and graphic design had become too much alike. And if you wanted to sell something, your brand tag, it better look like everybody else's. There was a formula to the visual art of it. Nobody even seemed to to want to voice those crazy ideas anymore that used to take us to new heights in storytelling and film. We lost our confidence in our instincts and inner voices when it came to creativity. The world had definitely shifted, and nobody's family values got any better in the wake of it. They just got stale and boring, and going against the grain or a rebellious soul, questioning and backed by that magic innocence, that leap of faith and excitement to be an adventurer, it was finally gone. When enough people in a society grow a big enough mob, you get this very sterilized, emotionally distanced, and apathetic culture. Only people who have hung on to the idea that their spiritual instincts should drive their decisions have been able to hold on to that sense of personal peace and real satisfaction and good art. Those cultures are rare to find now. Those people are rare. The numbers are getting smaller and smaller, disappearing, turning into nothing but legends. A long time ago, somebody built and composed a song because it meant something to them. 
Now they hurry to sell reproduced and duplicated beat clips to pay rent on time. That natural, dynamic force of the planet at one time inspired us to conjure beautiful music and tell incredible stories and leap towards adventures and discoveries. Now we're desperate and frightened because we can't afford to live or our country is headed into civil unrest or the memory of fun and soul-searching is so far away now that the heart of music and art is almost gone. The heart that we used to possess in regards to the willingness to share new ideas or things with each other without a selfish motive is so rare that any proposition or idea is just another scam or someone looking to make a buck. They don't really care about you or the thing they're selling. They're just trying to sell something, anything. At least that's what we all believe now every time we hear it. Anytime we hear somebody trying to get our attention with a new idea. And that's a bummer. Nobody can trust anybody with a new idea for fear of it just being another swindle. What happened to the person who took chances and represented the fool, the innocent one, the faith leaper who ran around conjuring up dreams and planting creative seeds in people's heads simply because of the excitement of it all? Do those people even exist anymore? I say yes. I'm one of them. If my focus was money, I'd have some. (laughs) This is kind of a follow-up from last week, a part two of listening to your inner voice with a dose of group mentality thrown in. (laughs) To recap, your inner voice is that spiritually instinctive, bright beam of light that comes from some kind of great force of power and energy. Some people believe it's God. Some people believe it's something else. Doesn't matter. It's in there. It's in you. Connecting everybody in earth and space together. Reproducing. Forever. And when we brush off this powerful force inside us, when we lose confidence in it, our only option is to become another walk and copy of some trend. And then what happens to those things that we used to personally believe in? Well, they become the instincts hidden away under a a superimposed network of opinions from other people. They're lost, tossed aside, questioned. Our own instincts, inner voice, that thing that's supposed to be guiding us and is so powerful and so bright, distrusted and eventually discarded. That's what happens when we get too lost in the collective. Some collectives are good. Some go too far. And there it is again. We're not good at the thing called balance. And there are all sorts of reasons and factors behind collectives and different types. Some of them are pretty distracting, like generation gaps. I remember having a really hard time with the generation gap when I was dating this guy who was 14 years younger than me. Yes, I did that. It was quite easy. He was very attractive. And to be honest, it was the best relationship I've ever had. But in doing that, I lived my lifestyle surrounded by people his age. And that became very weird for me after a while. I know age is just a number, but generation gaps are a real thing. The whole world changes a lot in one decade. 
Now, this guy was really mature for his age. That's probably why it worked. But all our young friends weren't so much. And there was this one thing that had changed over that decade that really bothered me. And I just couldn't get used to. Still can't. And that was that fear that most of the opposite sex had over talking one-on-one with me. They were terrified. The men I was used to in my age range, say from about 46 to 51, their mindset was totally different in regards to the way they talk to women. And these young lads, they had come from a different age. The genders were not supposed to approach each other anymore and talk and be friends. It generated distrust. They couldn't do that unless they either had a sexual agenda or they wanted to talk about business and making money. But if you fell into any other category, they simply didn't understand and reacted with confusion and fear. And I just couldn't take it for long. It was getting really frustrating. I felt like I was living in some kind of weird world where the genders were supposed to stay segregated unless they were ready to copulate or find a job. (laughs) It took a toll on my sanity. Where were all the high school kids I grew up with back in the 80s who didn't even think about that stuff and just enjoyed being around each other intimately and playing music? Those people who could actually just sit on a porch together and do nothing. These kids didn't know how to do nothing with the opposite sex. And you had to look at each other through a phone. God forbid you do it with your eyes. And don't smile. Somebody's going to think you're about to molest them or something. I know that's a harsh observation there. But that's how I really felt at the time. I told that story just to illustrate how much things can change in 10 years. I know not everybody fits into a category. I'm a strong advocate of sizing people up on an individual basis. But that was just my personal experience at the time and the place I found myself in. I was the oldest one on the subway in the mornings in Brooklyn. I'd look around me and notice I was finally that elderly lady. Maybe two or three of us might be on that train at the same time. All these young whippersnappers were rushing off to the movie sets and the coffee shops. I think it might have been because most people my age were actually driving in between the city and Jersey or Long Island. I have to admit, I was living in an area loaded with very young people in the same area of work. Most of them worked on movie sets. My ex, he was a cinematographer, and they'd all moved there to build a a reputation in some category of film or art or cinema. Anyway, I I digress. Since I was immersed in this new generation on some pretty intimate levels... I got to see how they succeeded or they failed. I got to see how the world's quote-unquote moral shift had taken away from them a lot of opportunity to really understand the intimacy that we all had back in the 80s and, and the 70s and the 60s. This was a new era. It was another mentality. Family values had become pulled out of proportion, and technology was hiding heart and soul even more. It was a recipe for real emotional distance, and it affected work and the way we make our money. There was a way bigger focus on money now. 
I mean, where else is your head going to go? You can't be too close to people and have too much fun anymore, so you might as well just work and focus on that money. Now, I don't believe money is a bad thing. I like money. I make some sometimes. But money as an only focus, it detracts from the original inner voice. And that actually works against you when you're trying to make that money in new, innovative ways. Because your innovation comes from your spiritual instinct, not a churned out belt line of copied ideas. Innovation and good ideas, they come from what you want, what you love, and what you dream about at night when you're alone, by yourself, The worst thing to do when you're trying to come up with a way to make money is to just try to come up with a way to make money. We're all very similar in our basic desires. If you desire something, I can guarantee you a million other people desire that very same thing. So find a way to monetize that, your feelings and your instincts, something you want that you can't find because nobody's done it yet. Not quite the way you want it done. Do that. Our inner voices are usually a little louder, too, when we're alone. We become what we're surrounded by. So if you're living in an urban, busy, populated environment where you've stayed for a long, long time and gotten used to, then you become acclimated to that. You've learned to melt into that environment. And it works. And if you suddenly go off the grid into the woods alone, well, your first days by yourself there will conjure up some really old demons and skeletons. And that inner voice will have to regurgitate all that stuff that's been built up and smashed down into the recesses of the mind. All those inner instinctive and personal things that other people have criminalized for so long now that you might believe that you're some dark, guilty person and you've pushed all those desires and ideas down. That will take some time to release. Now this mob mentality, this collective thinking, it grows and becomes something different. A large group of something eventually morphs into its own entity and it becomes something else. And this is just how nature takes its course. Let's look at grasshoppers. Grasshoppers are small and fresh and green, and they can hide in the grass, and they're tiny on their own, and they don't do that much damage. They make a lot of noise, but that noise is really pretty. To me, anyway, I like to listen to it at night. I gave away a name for their music I made up recently in one of my posts. I like to call it Emerald Psalms. It's like an opera. Anyway, this creature is pretty well liked in just about every culture when it's just a grasshopper. They represent good luck, and they have all this positivity associated with them, right? Well, grasshoppers can become locusts. They're pretty much one and the same creature. Scientific American published an article in uh, 2009 called When Grasshoppers Go Biblical, which is the most awesome title. I love that title because it's so perfect for what they do. And in this article, Catherine Harmon, the writer, explains it. This is Catherine Harmon Courage. She's a freelance journalist. She's written a lot of stuff for National Geographic, NPR, 
Her forte is uh, nature articles and environmental things. So she explained in her words, serotonin spurs a cascade of Dr. Jekyll to Mr. Hyde-like changes in at least one species of grasshopper. And this is what's actually responsible for them turning into swarms of locusts. It's a really interesting article. These shy, timid little grasshoppers basically go from being harmless and solitary and avoiding each other to joining a gang and destroying orchards and field crops and reproducing like crazy. They become a new entity when insects, who usually avoid everything and go their separate ways, when they come together into a group, they fall into order with each other and they work to move in the same direction, usually with the intent of eating or finding water things they need and they breed a lot when they're in those large groups and they get psyched up they've become their own entity in this big big group and humans do the same thing it's kind of hard to get away from because we tend to really police each other when we want to establish a new norm or make the whole group work together to achieve something i read excerpts i should go back and read the whole book But I read some of the book called um, The Lucifer Principle. I love to read. And I don't always choose my reading material according to what makes me comfortable and what I already agree with. I do like to hear other people's point of view, even if I think that I can't stand that person, because I'm a very curious creature. I want to know people. I want to know why they do the things they do. So I was reading some of this book, and there was one thing in it that I didn't quite like hearing very much, but it made an impression on me, and I can't deny that it really works that way. And it's the fact that when we get together as a larger body of people with any particular focus in mind, we lose our individuality, and we become a cell in what's a bigger animal. And suddenly this group is its own animal with one goal. It's moving in one direction. And we're just part of that movement that takes it forward. Some of us fight to get to the front of it and lead it, but not all of us can get up there. And this mob, this entity just takes over, becomes strong, focused, and can get real destructive real fast. But on our own, away from this big group, alone, we're completely different people. Groups are not always bad, but they're groups, and they do work differently than individuals do. They work collectively. You've got elitist, profit-minded groups. They're a collective. You've got, you've got hippie communal groups. <laughs> they're a collective. I was on a mega cruise ship a couple years back in the middle of the ocean with like-minded people, and we were a collective. I felt myself fall into the mix, fall in line with the general consensus of what we were all there for and trying to achieve, which was to have a fun time and enjoy the music together. I know people who have gone to bluegrass festivals. Any festival becomes its own entity, and you have this entirely different new mindset. It's a collective. We feel different when we leave it and come home. 
and we operate collectively with the same mind for the same purpose. In general, I mean, I mean, you've got your give and take, but generally speaking in a group, we are one. And this is a natural, normal thing to do. That inner voice can kind of get lost a little bit when we're focused and immersed in our collective environments, in our collective goals. And that works until it becomes too big or not all of us are enjoying its rewards anymore or getting fed anymore. And then these individuals start to fall back. And this is how the world retains a balance. Of course, if we all needed and wanted the same thing in all our lives, we'd kindly eat our way to starvation. But our world is big and it's diverse, and there's room for you and me and balance. And there's a time and place for everything. One of my favorite songs in the whole world is Turn, Turn, Turn to Everything There is a Season by the Birds. Well, I like their version the best. The lyrics were taken almost verbatim from that old history book, the King James Version of Ecclesiastes, traditionally ascribed to King Solomon. And I think in light of everything that's happening in trying to remember that nothing lasts forever, I'm going to end this episode today with those lyrics, those original lyrics. To everything, there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to reap, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather those stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain. A time to gain and a time to lose. A time to keep, a time to cast away. A time to rend, a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time of love and a time of hate. A time of war and a time of peace. But Pete Seeger, who was a social activist, ended his song with a plea for peace as he writes a time for peace I swear it's not too late this has been Natural and Wild with Christine Grayson I want to thank those who are in charge of the primary support of this show my friends and patrons Bruce Presson Chris Nolan Sheila McGregor Robin Umber Yvonne Ragland Arnold Bloom and William Bishop I want to thank the generous donations to the virtual tip jar this week and all the people who have stayed lifted and kept going this week. You inspire me to keep my head up too. Everybody have a great weekend and come back next week for another episode.